You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast. I call upon my ancestors to judge me and my clan. Welcome to Modern Myth with me, the anarchaeologist Tristan. Now today I'm talking to uh, Dr. Suzanne Hakenbeck of the University of Cambridge uh, Archaeology Department. Um, her recent piece, Genetics, Genetics Archaeology in Far Right, an Unholy Trinity, is going to be published in World Archaeology uh, very soon. We've had a chance to have a look at a pre-release uh, copy of it and see what it talks about when it comes to ideas about heritage and how the way in which these ideas have been talked about in terms of genetics and um, population migration, how these have been used by adherents of the far right. So, Suzanne, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and talk. Yeah, thanks for asking me. So I want to kind of understand, obviously the context of this is very much in the sense of the bewildering um, rise of the far right, both in Europe, America, and the online sphere when it comes to what can only be described as fascism, racism, and really awful, awful ideas. But what for you was the context for you writing this? What really said, right, I need to write something about this? Um, well, I think there have been conversations happening in archaeology around genetics for a while. So archaeologists, you know, many colleagues that I've been talking to um, have an increasing frustration about how archaeology and genetics work together um, and this really I think this came to a head um, in around 2015 when um, there were a number I mean it was a really big year for um, for studies of, of um, archaeological population genetics. So a number of papers came out that year that made really grand claims about um, the, the history of um, European populations. And in a way, there were a lot, some of those claims were not narratives of the past that archaeologists could recognize or 
um, you know, they were kind of grand, they were grand stories about migrations, about population replacement. Um, and these are, these are the kinds of things that archaeology used to talk about. So they were, you know, migrations in particular have been um, explanatory tools for, for, for social change um, for a long time. But um, in the last, let's say really since the 1960s, um, that, that was extensively critiqued. Um, and so it feels very much like where archaeology is right now, um, the way in which a lot of people think about social processes in the past doesn't really fit with this idea that, that migrations are the prime mover, you know, that, that migrations are the thing that, that brings about social change. Um, so that's been a kind of internal conversation within archaeology. Um, but I've also been, um, through things I do in my job in, 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 in the department, um, I'm quite involved in, in public communication and academic outreach. So I'm really interested in, in how we can appropriately and in an interesting way communicate our research to the public. And, and so I started looking into how this kind of work is being received um, by people, you know, non-archaeologists. Um, and that's really when I when I when I realised that there are some there are some quite problematic ways in which the narratives that are highly simplified that come out of archaeological studies then feed into public discourse around you know present day anxieties to do with migrations, um, population replacement. Um, the history of Europe, even the history of the white race. Um, yeah, and no, that's that's what prompted me to then, you know, start this research and look a bit more deeply in, into what's out there. So it's quite interesting that that kind of builds into, you know, 2014, uh, especially when you know the when it was the European migration uh, crisis kind of uh, first started getting headlines where. Um, people began talking about it and that obviously formed into these weird kind of um kind of almost like psychoses uh social psychoses of being taken over by some foreign invaders and it's quite interesting that despite archaeology having almost gone past this it was still there in the wider like social psyche it's almost as if it's almost as if uh, we archaeologists never actually properly communicated. Actually, we don't think this anymore. But the the problem then comes when um, when when people kind of say, "Well, why why can't we talk about uh, migration anymore?" You know, like who who's pulling the strings here? Who says we can't? And this is where, unfortunately, people um, kind of make it seem it's not that immigration and migration are forbidden but rather that they don't match up with what's actually there in the past i think you talk a little bit about that in what you've written yeah I, that that is a really interesting aspect of this because i we can see this in in wider political discourse around all sorts of things that there are people who claim that 
they are not allowed to talk about certain things. Okay, these could be um, to do with migration, um, or it could be um, to do with empire, or it could be to do with um, with gender, um, and but actually these people talk about these topics all the time. So it's, that in itself is quite interesting, you know, how, why there is this sense that, you know, somehow there are these topics that are, um, you know, they can't be talked about. Um, and somehow, you know, the political correctness stops people from talking about these topics. And and I found it was very interesting that there, there were these, these, um, these parallels in, in some of the research that has happened recently, where, where I get a sense that, you know, some, some scholars are, they seem to be really relieved that, you know, now suddenly we can just do away with all this theory that we've had that has focused so much on, on nuance, um, on, on, on cultural complexities, the way in which people relate, how everything is actually really difficult. And now you can really come in and say, no, there really were these big migrations. And look, you know, this was the impact that these big migrations had. And actually, everything is really straightforward. You know, we we don't have to worry about, you know, the inter intricacies of, you know, what did material culture really mean? Can we really determine somebody's ethnicity through material culture in the past? You know, all these really complicated things around identity and, you know, how is, is it a self-conceptualization? Is it an um, external ascription? No, 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 you, you can just do away with that. And it's really clear because genetics actually tells you um, about someone's ancestry and then by extension also about somebody's ethnicity and we have a very very clear evidence for this now um, yeah and uh, I don't quite I haven't quite worked out exactly why there are these parallel developments because one you know what's happening in the wider world is clearly political what's happening within archaeology i think is is also political but is is also to do with 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 method with ways of just thinking about evidence and the past it's it is political in to the extent to which everything that we do is is political but but there are there's another aspect to it as well well, I think there's uh, broader strokes. When I've talked to people, it's broader strokes about um, th just the way in which archaeology as an institution is conducted. You know, uh, there are bigger conversations um, at a professional level about what the role of an archaeologist is. There's discussions about what museums should do uh, to decolonize their themselves and you know, there's people who work at museums who um, basically want to keep everything the same because they own the museums. And I'm not uh, totally dunking on one individual or anything, but the V&A Museum needs to give back all its stuff. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff out there that contextually provides, uh, it's, it's almost like there, there's no, it's like a decentralized movement um, to the right again, you know, because what you were describing about, you know, people feeling as if uh, political correctness has gone wrong, it's the same for things like race and IQ, 
recent IQs, yeah. uh, recent intelligence come up again um, as uh, some horrible specter from the 20th century as this kind of like, uh, well, can, why can't we talk about recent IQ? Is yeah, that not important? Absolutely. And you kind of think, no, this is not how to talk about people. You cannot reduce people to a series of nucleotides and say conclusively uh, that's who they are. I mean, this is the problem. This has been the problem the whole time. So what are what are people, what are archaeologists talking about when they talk about these migrations? How, how are archaeo what kind of migrations are we talking about? Is this like, um, is this the bell beaker uh, culture, the linear band ceramic? Uh, what kind of um, time period are we talking about when archaeologists are talking about migrations from Europe into Britain? If I can just add to something that you said earlier, um, that I think is also really important, um, which is about, um, sure, you know, this worry about political correctness gone mad, where I think within certainly within archaeology, but also I think in the in the social sciences and sci sciences um, more widely, it's it's also actually about you know the appropriate method and the appropriate interpretation of the evidence that you derive from the method and this is something that i find so surprising you know when you know people go oh let's talk mm -hmm. about race and iq again well the method behind those studies has been extensively criticized um we we know where where the problems lie with these kinds of studies you know these problems get picked up in peer review so it's not simply a matter of saying, oh, here's one opinion and then here's another opinion and we can't possibly tell which one is correct. Like that, that's wrong, you know, because we have ways in which we can evaluate whether somebody's interpretation or somebody's stu study has been done appropriately and, and rigorously. Um, and, and so, so, you know, within academia, that's also something that I find astonishing because there, there just seems to be a lot of really bad science coming out. Um, right, and as to your second point, wh where are we in, in time? Well, there have been a number of... Um, so, so in 2015, there, there were a number of papers that came out. The, the, most, the ones with the biggest impact related to the Bronze Age, the early Bronze Age, um, because, so, so just to give a bit of a timeline, so it, it seems the earlier studies of using genomic data focused on the Neolithic because um, the long-established hypothesis has been that, um, that, you know, the Neolithic, so the Neolithic package, but potentially also people um, spread out of, out of Anatolia um into into europe and um so they they've subsequently that then there were um genomic studies who which um ascertained that yes that original hypothesis was largely correct there was some input of populations from anatolia but there was also input from um hunter gatherers that were pre-existing in europe so that was relatively straightforward but then what happened 
with the studies focusing on the Bronze Age is that what the evidence there seemed to show was that there was a, a massive population replacement in the early Bronze Age. So the, the people, the earlier Neolithic people, seemed to have disappeared and they were replaced by these incomers um, during the early Bronze Age, incomers um, from, um, from the steppes. So we're talking modern day Ukraine. And that narrative ties in with um, an earlier hypothesis that predates um, genomic studies completely, um, which saw the origins of um, Proto-Indo-European also um, in in the steppes, in the Eurasian steppes, okay? And so two things happened. So one was that simply the, there was this very, so what came out of the genomic studies focusing on the Bronze Age, it just seemed like there was massive population replacement, which raises the question, how did that happen, okay? Um, and conceivably that was, through violence, but there are also other um, other um, hypotheses around um, whether um, the earlier Neolithic populations um, were wiped out through plague um, and then replaced um, by the incoming people in the Bronze Age. And then the other aspect of that is the link to Proto-Indo-European. So there was this, this, this tie to the language and now Proto-Indo-European in itself, you know, there's quite a complicated area that, you know, linguistic, uh, ling um, linguistics is interested in that, but it also has a really complicated research history because it, it, yeah. it ties in with um, research interests in the 19th century and the early 20th century around the origins of Aryans, um, and so there is, Yeah. it's not that the studies that have come out have gone and said, oh, let's, let's look for these Aryans or something. That's not it. But it, there were kind of few steps to take from this, uh, from these studies of, um, mm -hmm. these genomic studies of population history to some people thinking, oh, well, was that, is that the original homeland of the white race then? And I, I want to be... And that's, that's primarily the problem. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, so, I mean, I really want to be clear that the, you know, the researchers doing that, doing that work weren't the ones who made that leap, but there weren't that many leaps that needed to be taken and someone did take it and that's that's the that's the next step isn't it it's the idea that basically um a lot of these researchers may not have seen that in fact the way they wrote about this um left it open to further interpretation in a much more 
standard narrow approach. I mean, the whole thing is like there there are questions even in biology and anthropology as to like well a lot of people don't think biological race actually exists as we understand it. This idea that you can phenotype, you know, humans into like five broad categories um, is is a ridiculous idea. And so even trying to narrow down what white is, is uh, difficult enough. But true to their word, there were journalists and others who kind of took these ideas uh, forward. And they were the ones picking this up and making the next step. Um, you identify several different places where journalists have taken what has been written in these articles and they take it a bit further and you can almost see it in the like the headlines that are yeah. made. Yeah, and I mean here I also have to say it's yes, it is the journalists, but it is also a big problem lies with the press releases. Um, because, so, you know, you have your academic paper which is, you know, it's published in Nature, multi-authored paper, there's big method section, um, and then, you know, you have your, your interpretation that's kind of cautious to a degree or, or, or formulated in a very academic language. And then the press release is the place where you can then go, well, if you want to communicate your research to the public, you then tell, you know, a simplified, punchy story about your research. And, and I mean, here I really can't, yeah. I can't really can't let the researchers off the hook because, because press releases are generally mm. written in consultation with the people who did the research. I mean, this is not the university press office going away off on its own because, you know, the people who work in the press offices, they're, they're not experts in these studies, you know, they need the input of the people who actually did the work. Um, and then, you know, from my own experience, when, I, when I've done that, when I've worked with the press office, you know, it's a kind of collaborative process. Um, it's in, in the interest um, of the comms people that you write your story in a simple and engaging way. But at the same time, it's also in their interest that the science is correct, that the reporting is correct. Um, and so I think certainly the people who then sign off the press releases that relate to their own research, bear considerable responsibility for how their research is then picked up in the media. And then very often you find that um, journalists take more or less verbatim the stuff that's in the press release anyway, and then maybe they add some more, you know, kind of depending on which news organ you're thinking about. But, you know, if we're talking about um, the Daily Mail, they get really excited um, by by stories about archaeology and then really ramp them up, especially especially if they then see that there's some kind of angle that makes it relevant to a contemporary concern, which migration clearly is. Um, and so there we are, and then we've you know moved three steps on, and we're already then you know there are some stories, um, some some um, news stories here that that talk about. Um, let me just go and have a look, you know, um, massive migration, um, or they go and they go, um, uh, <laughs> well, here was, here's a funny one, modern Europe, 
was formed by milk drinking Russians. Um, that's one of the uh, that was in the Daily Mail. Which one is it? Modern Europe formed by milk drinking Russians. Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> um, of course it was. I was going to ask. I, I I'm sure that that paper. Um, you know, the one that everybody loves and is not awful in any way possible would have a, would love that. They would, you know, they would lap it up. Um, I mean, I, I but it wasn't only in uh, UK. I, I'm, sh I'm pretty sure I read that in other languages as well um, about these kind of like mass conquerors and, you know, these violent uh, people. Um, it's not actually just the tabloids that are talking about them, about this, is it? No, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, there I have to say, you know, if, with my with my own experience of, um, of 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 doing, you know, press engagement um, based on some research that I did previously, yeah, anything that is about, you know, conquerors or violence, um, you know, people love it. Journalists love it. Um, but then I would also say it is actually possible to try to add some nuance or to tone it down a bit, as opposed to dial that stuff up even further. Uh, it wasn't. It's not just tabloid media that actually were doing it, because I remember there was the the New Scientist article. That's right. Which uh, you mentioned in your thing, and I I remember that, and I remember seeing that and thinking. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is kind of hackish. Like, this is something I would re like if this was like a political pundit, I I'd be calling them a hack. It really, yeah. it read to me as not as as really having an angle. I, you know? Yeah, and I I completely agree with you. I mean that 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 came out just you know the, a day or two before I submitted um, my revised manuscript, I think. And, and I thought, oh God, this just totally proves my point. You know, there was, um, you know, at that point, the article in the New Scientist was 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 talking about genocide, um, genocide in the Bronze Age. And I mean, I have to say, I I think certainly, you know, we have the responsibility to consider the past in its entire complexity, and if there is evidence for 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 warfare and violence even genocide this is something that we need to study and we need to study it critically because you know this is this is relates to the entirety of of human experience but you know if you if you start talking about genocide in the past then you you'd better have some really good evidence when you're talking about it um, because I mean, otherwise it's just it's just tendentious attention grabbing. And what it then leads to is the next shocking like part of this, which I mean, I'll be absolutely honest here. Um, the reason, like, I, I'm I'm quite concerned that archaeologists are not doing enough to prominently deal with how the far right and the alt right online are using and misusing history like i i think um i i mean that in a kind of like as a as a as a discipline as a whole there's not a lot of um there's a lot of people who would rather not talk on it because they're concerned about how that reflects on them personally and the second thing is something that i've come across when i've spoken to people in private where 
they actually don't want to engage because they fear for themselves, you know, uh, and for their own safety. Uh, I've spoken to several women online who have said to me that they would like to talk more, uh, you know, provide more kind of like arguments against, you know, the alt-right, the far-right and everything. But as soon as they talk about anything, you know, they're instantly dogpiled by a number of absolutely awful people uh, and they're effectively drowned out from any platform they have. So it's it, the, the thing is, I want more archaeologists to deal with um, the far right and stuff like that, but th there's a danger to it. But let's circle back and kind of talk about in what ways do the far right actually use this information? So what were you looking at? Well, so there, <laughs> it was pretty unpleasant. So I just, I just kind of, it, I began by just kind of randomly searching on the internet just to kind of see what, what's out there. Um, and then relatively quickly, um, I hit on the, um, the Stormfront forum. Um, also because there was some um, has been some really brilliant work done by Aaron Panofsky and, and Joan Donovan who, who looked at um, how we looked at the impact of genetic ancestry tests on self-professed members mm -hmm. of the far right because what's very interesting there is that um, especially in, in the US it's you know reasonably common for anyone within the, the, the population, I mean, even people who consider themselves to be white, that there is some degree of mixed ancestry in there. So they looked at what, what happens to these people who are, you know, self-confessed white supremacists, if they find that um, um, these ancestry tests show that they don't exclusively have, have what they think of as white ancestry. Um, so that's really interesting, but that doesn't that that work did not um, directly relate to the kinds of work that's been done in archaeology. But I found that um, there are conversations about archaeological evidence, especially around the origins of the white race, um, and then also about these 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 studies of of population um, demographics. Um, I have to say the 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 concerns about personal ancestry by far outweigh um, interest in in archaeology or in in the past. Um, it, it, in Stormfront, you can on on the forum you can very easily do a search by just putting keywords in, um, and and so so the you know the personal side you know. Am I really totally white? You know, I I member of the you know far right. That's that seems to be a much bigger deal. But there are also some pretty sophisticated conversations going on there about um, uh, the, yeah the the genetic archaeological genomic um, evidence that has come out. And also, um, and this was another thing that I found quite shocking. Um, I I started this research, it began with a conference paper that goes back maybe two years ago. 
And then when I, when I wrote it up now for publication, I went back um, and I rechecked Stormfront, I, you know, checked my numbers, I went and I looked at the keywords again, and I found that there's been this explosion, like a, a tenfold explosion, I think, in some cases of the use of particular keywords, like, for example, Yamnaya. So within, over the space of, you know, two, two, I, two years, I think, is that's when I started. Um, interest in this has massively grown um, and that, that to me seems to be a response also to, to the way in which there, you know, the, these genomic studies have so much exposure in, in the mainstream media, you know, there's so much out there um, and then that, that, you know, feeds into, into these conversations that, that you see there on the extreme far right. And sorry, what were the keywords that you were looking for? I'd be interested to know, like methodology-wise, what keywords? How did you identify those keywords, and uh, how many did you come up with? I I just went. Um, what was it? I just basic stuff, archaeology and genomics, just kind of general search. Then you know, Yamnaya, bell beakers. Neolithic, just whatever I could really think of, just to see whether I could link it to particular, particular papers. So I had about five or six, I think, that I searched. And when you were saying that they were having quite in-depth conversations, I assume that some of the conclusions that they came to may have possibly been coloured by the way they viewed the world. Um, sometimes it probably wasn't really nice to read. How did you kind of deal with um, reading stuff that maybe wasn't so pleasant? I I've I've certainly come across some of this stuff, and I find it disturbing. How how do you kind of like even in a research frame of mind? How do you deal with some of the more awful stuff that you're reading? Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly it is it is disturbing. Um... <sighs> But, you know, they weren't, it, well, it's still disturbing in a kind of, you know, theoretical, intellectual kind of sense. Um, I mean, where, where it, it did get me is when, when they, you know, they referred to, so, so some, some, of, some, of the, <laughs> some of those conversations are, um, so it's about the content of the studies and how that, you know, bolsters, a worldview that, you know, for example, you know, where people are interested in the origins of the white race. So that's one aspect of the conversation. The other aspect of the conversation, mm -hmm. and, and, and this is also something that Panofsky and Donovan um, uh, picked up on, is, is this fear about how trustworthy um, these experts are. So so you know can you really you know if you send off your some spit um to some um ancestry um testing company you know will you really you know can you trust the results especially you know when the results tell you that you know you're not as right as you thought you were um and then similarly there were some references to to individuals you know to to researchers there um that um, I, I mean, that part I found really worrying, you know, when, you know, they're, they're specifically talking about individuals, um, because then I thought, well, 
like what else are these people going to do you know are they would they be prepared to you know harass people online which you know we know that oftentimes they are prepared even worse you know what what are they you know when it when you kind of get away from you know do, do you have an understanding of the past that i find false and problematic to what are the kinds of things you would be prepared to do in the present um so that's something that i found that, that made me very uncomfortable and found it, found it quite disturbing. I'm quite interested. Um, obviously, the right has its own kind of propaganda machines. So it has its own media um, that actually, in some ways, they have their own experts. Uh, did you ever come across them discussing people like uh, Stefan Molyneux, who's one of the more favorite people to kind of talk in like expert kind of language about the past and stuff like that? Do you, do you remember? Did any names pop out at you? No. No, sorry. Well, then you're lucky, honestly. You're doing really well. Um, so I want to move forward a little bit on to, uh, beyond all this kind of depressing kind of way that history is being twisted, and perhaps looking forward, uh, what do you see archaeologists and uh, like the, uh, the institutions of archaeology, but also researchers and basically everybody how, how do we how do we deal with these things better you mentioned that press releases are maybe part of a problem um how can we make things better yeah i mean i think i have to say i'm 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 feeling reasonably pessimistic about what can be done to actually counter extreme far-right ideas um, so in a way I think that's maybe almost pointless to directly engage with those ideas where it's absolutely not pointless and I think where where we as archaeologists have a great responsibility is to put information out there that the public at large who are of all sorts of different political persuasions um, might find interesting um, because I think it's about a wider it's about a wider conversation and that wider conversation has to start in, in some kind of generally agreed upon area of discourse okay and I think that's where um, I mean one one thing is simply just communicating about the breadth of, of research that people do communicating carefully um, you know providing information about what people were up to in the past that isn't isn't just about grand narratives but also about you know interesting stories to do with you know individual lives um, you know with with people who you know worked in the fields not just you know kings and queens or whatever so so that's that's one thing and i think the other thing that we need to do um much much better is is talk about how we actually arrive at the interpretations that we make and and i think that you know that really t also ties in with what we what we see so much at the moment that there's this great you know, distrust of experts, and and I think there maybe academics have really 
kind of drop the ball because you know if you're in some ways i think it's totally valid not to be expected to believe to be believed just simply because you know you have a phd or you're a professor or something i think that's actually you know there's a, a bit of kind of skepticism there is, is totally valid but then i think it's really up to us to say well look here's how it did it you know this is this is what this is based on um, you know, I started with this, you know, this was the kind of question that I was interested in. And and then look, this is how I can show you how, how we got from A to B. Um, and, and I think that's something that we just haven't really done enough. And and I think with every with every study, um, Maybe it's a bit difficult to add that into the press release, but I think I think it should be possible to at least provide a bit of information about, you know, just the, the nuance and just how difficult research is sometimes. But then there are also other, you know, other forums where you can talk a bit more about just how you how you did your thing. Yeah, like like podcasting, right? Right? Exactly. Exactly. So everybody should be basically podcasting your work from this point onwards. I, 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 I really think, Susanna, you've really, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, I think that's, that's definitely where we want to go. But I find it interesting that I completely agree um, from uh, like a, quite a similar perspective in terms of opening up history to everyone. I think that's a very, very important part because so much, as you've written uh, in your uh, this article, so much relies on archaeology being tucked away or hidden or only for certain people to kind of work with. Whereas actually, archaeology can and should be open to all. Um, I mean, just, just a final little thing, um, several points I, I one of my previous episodes I spoke to Dr. Kenny Barufi from the University of Glasgow and his um his he did a paper about Brexit prehistory. Right. Uh yeah. now obviously yeah. obviously I, I'm sure Brexit comes up at some point here. Um because I'm pretty sure there's no doubt that like one of these like invasions was prevented by a british like a neolithic brexit um have you did have you come across the brexit myth uh in the past as well is this is this everywhere it, yeah it is it is everywhere um what is yeah so in in my in my field so i'm not a prehistorian right so my my field is is late antiquity and the early middle ages um, and then we see the flip side. Um, so people talk a lot, a lot about the fall of the Roman Empire. No. Like this, this, the fall of the Roman Empire has has come back with a vengeance. I mean, to the point even where um, you know the the, the European um, a migration crisis uh, was compared to the Goths uh, crossing the Danube, you know, and um, and, and bringing down the Roman Empire. I mean, this is something that you you can read that there are there are journalists out there who write that kind of stuff. Um, so that's, I think that's the kind of the opposing side of the Brexit coin. Um, yeah, I mean, and and I mean to that ultimately, I also just have to defend really strongly that. I think there are no 
there are no real lessons from the past about the present. Um, you know, the past is the past and the past is intrinsically really interesting, but, mm-hmm. you know, the battle of Adrian Paul does not inform us in any way about, <laughs> about the European migration crisis. Um, in the in the mid 21st century, uh, sorry, in the um, early 21st century. <laughs> oh well, if only we're in the mid 21st century, that would be actually quite good because we need to leave all of this behind us. But where will we be? Absolutely we'll right. Be engulfed right. in um, in in <laughs> well devastating climate change and sea level rise no. 50 years from now. I... <laughs> oh. Do you know what? I look forward. I look forward to the archaeology of the early twenty-first century. Oh yes, I, I study archaeology of the twenty early twenty-first century. Uh, yeah, they they had words like on fleek to describe things that were good, and uh, they had several generations of phones. Uh, you could actually date the year by the phone they had on yeah. them when they died, <laughs> apart from the ones that had CEX written on the back. They obviously were from a lower socioeconomic class and got it second hand. Uh, yes, <laughs> I can see it yeah. already. Oh, and here we've got the iPhone X phase uh, in this yeah, part. Yeah, totally, uh, this... totally. <laughs> uh, I, no, I, I, but you see all these things mesh together. You know, this idea that like somehow history provides some sort of like basis to live your life, which is ridiculous, but it does i think a lot of people are disillusioned with how society is run and how society exists and i i i you know history is a a very good way for people to kind of feel a part of something bigger than themselves and one of the most dangerous things about the far right is that they create spaces where people feel safe and they feel like oh it's not just me i'm part of something bigger but that ends up being murderous and vile and horrible. And we really need to make sure that doesn't happen. No, I I, I agree. And, and I, I think there also, that, I mean, you. I think when you started, you said, you know, we've seen this recent rise of the far right, but you know that this has been there. We have, some of these ideas go back to the 19th century. Many of the ideas that we see um, resurfacing now go, go um, back to the um, early and mid 20th century. I mean, kind of depending on, on where you look when you when you consider eugenics, well, the eugenics movement goes back to the 19th century. Um, race anthropology, um, you know, as was, um, you know, current in in germany is the you know early 20th century this there is a continuity there and there isn't i I think we've this has been these thoughts and ideas have been there the entire time and now it's just a a new moment where it where it rises up again it is it's pretty awful uh but yeah at least at least we have twitter (laughs) for the moment (laughs) For the moment, at least we have the ability to talk to one another, to support one another, and kind of, you know, help each other out. Um, speaking of which, um, so I find you through Twitter. How, if people want to read 
uh, the, and follow the work that you do, how, how can they find you on the internet? Um, it's not an invitation for trolls. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah okay, well, um, no you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there. You can find me on Twitter. Um, there's also just the standard route. You know, my contact details are on my university website. There's my email addresses there. Um, do you have any projects coming up? Anything of um, note? You said you do kind of like outreach stuff. I mean, my other thing, and that's you'll see, you'll see that from the from my from my Twitter. You know, my uh, my other kind of life is, um, you know, trade union activism. So yes. that's kind of. <laughs> oh that's kind of yes! Oh, I'm fully behind <laughs> you on this. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, that, that that is a good place to end on. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking us through what you've written. Um, we can't wait for it to be released. And yeah, we'll definitely say, uh, we'll have a link to that and obviously Twitter and everything. So thank you very much. And thank you, listener, for uh, tuning in. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much.